verse 1 to Joshua 10, verse 15. Starts on page 157 of your Pew Bibles. Now when all the kings of the west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskin, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread in their supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you, and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Hezbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our, leader, uh, and our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We're your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins were filled, were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals were, are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, Kiriath, Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, Let them live, but let them live let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leaders promised to them what's kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while well, actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers to the house for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and this is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites 
woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city. Like one of the royal cities, it was larger than Ai, and Od's men were good fighters. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up position against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. And Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before the Lord, before Israel on the road between, down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than they were killed by the sword of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day where the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with Israel to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't it great when scripture speaks directly right to our lives and, and how we live day by day? Yeah, okay. So we'll take a look at this. But before we do, let me make a couple of comments. First of all, about the temperature. I can remember when I used to travel internationally, I worked out how the airlines work, uh, what they, their strategy, the airline strategy. First, they feed you, and then they put the temperature in the cabin up a few degrees. So you get really dopey, and you're passive for the rest of the flight because you can hardly stay awake. This is not why we've put the temperature up this morning. We would like you to stay awake if you can. Uh, it's just that we have a multiple compressors that cool off this building, and not all of them are working. 
uh, to this morning. And so, interestingly enough, CM suffered through it first, and they actually have to sit close together because there's over 600 of them. And it got really warm in here, and they told me before the English service started that they managed to uh, override the compressor. They kind of hot-wired it so it would keep running. I think somehow that's not working because it's still kind of warm in here. But hang in there. It's not our intent to put you to sleep. Uh, the second thing is, you know, uh, Pastor Caleb did highlight We've had modest growth over the last quarter, and you know, you know, we're pleased to see that. But we've had considerable growth in giving over the last year. And I've meant to put out a bulletin insert just to scope that out for you, because this is something that you know, we can really take pleasure in, the generosity of God's people for God's work. And we know the figures are reliable, because before Pastor David Eng became a pastor, he was an accountant. So he does all of our number crunching now. So we're really appreciative that we can get him to... Actually, he can do accountancy work at the cost of a pastor. So this really, we're getting a good deal on this. Yeah. So if any of you have tax trouble next April, uh, you know who to call. Don't call me. Okay. Now look, what we've got in this account is a, a, a battle. You know, basically, uh, Israel is invading... Palestine, and they've managed to defeat a couple of enemies, and one city hears about it and thinks, well, we want to make peace with these people. And so, is, so basically what you have is, now, now the city knew that Israel was forbidden to make peace. God had told Israel to destroy them. So the city wants peace, can't get it, figures out how, how are we going to do it. So they devise a strategy. They trick Israel by making it look like they take you know, old clothing, they take old food, uh, they take old uh, equipment, and they march into Israel, march up to Israel, and they say, look how far we've come. You see how old our clothing is? You see how old our food is? You see how old our equipment is? It was all brand new when we started out, and now it's, we've been traveling so long, it's so old, and they asked for a treaty. And Israel was tricked into it. And made a treaty. Now, how is this relevant to our lives? Basically, if you look at the subtext of what's going on in Jericho 9 and 10, no, in Joshua 9 and 10, what you see here is we see them reaching a decision. We see them, you know, the circumstances are not entirely clear. And they work their way through, how do we make a decision in this circumstance? So we're not going to discuss how should America make a decision about whether or not to invade another country or whether or not to make a treaty not to invade another country. That's not relevant to a whole lot of us. Not a whole lot of us are military people. And Israel and America are not the same kind of thing anyway. You know, America is not God's people today in the sense that Israel was in that day. But we want to look at the underlying flow of the narrative. How did they decide what the will of God was in their circumstance. And in fact, they didn't decide it rightly. They got it wrong. And then we see the remediation they went through, the remediation process to try and figure out how can we make a good thing out of this mess up. So what we want to look at this morning is the same practices that they followed to find the will of God. How can we follow them as we look for the will of God? Now, as it happens... I was preparing this sermon entirely, the sermon was, this passage was slated for today entirely independent of Pastor Caleb's announcement. 
So it was only as I was preparing that I realized, oh, yeah, Pastor Caleb's also coming to talk about the building. And this is a collective decision we need to make together. So I will illustrate the decision-making process. We'll look at the decision-making process they went through and apply it to the decision we have to make as a corporate body about whether or not to have a new building. But you could apply these same practices to any decision you need to make in your life. You know, who you should marry, where you should go to school, what you should major in, what job you should take. A lot of these same principles or all of these same practices will apply to the decisions we make when we're looking for the will of God. So let's look together at the text to identify those practices and see how they apply to us. Their decision, should they make a treaty or not? Our decision, should we spend $6 million or more on a gym? Not similar decisions, but a similar decision-making process. Maybe you've attended a church as it was going through a building program. Basically what happens is the decision gets made in the back room behind the scenes somewhere. And then the congregation is marketed. What you'll have is a PowerPoint presentation, multimedia presentation, about all the exciting things we can do with this building program. All the exciting things this new building will enable us to do. Uh, you know, we can grow bigger, we can grow better, we can influence the work of God, we can contribute to the kingdom of God. So give. That's not what we're going to do this morning. What I want to do is look through this passage and figure out how did they try to identify God's will? And how did they fail to identify God's will? And then what, were they, what did they do to remediate that problem that they created? What we want to do together is, as a community, let's reason this out for ourselves. Let's reason this out together, rather than a few people deciding for us and then presenting a marketing program and selling it. Let's think about this together. Do we want to spend $6 million on a gym? What does scripture have to say to that? What does common sense have to say to that? What do our circumstances have to say to that? So follow me as we go through the book of Joshua, or Joshua chapter 9. It's on page 157. You'll want to have the text open. I won't be able to take you through detail, but there's several movements in this text, and I'm going to take you from one movement to the next as we look at this question. First of all, notice where they put priority. They put priority on their spoken word of God, on God's explicit commands. Take a look at chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. The, the Hivites have come to them. The Gibeonites have come to them, also called Hivites, and they've said, make a treaty with us. And what is their response? What's their instinctive first-line response? Verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, said to the Gibeonites, perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? And the Gibeonites ducked it. We are your servants, they said. But Joshua asked. First the people of Israel asked, and then Joshua asked, Who are you? And where do you come from? Why do they ask this question? Who are you? Where do you come from? Perhaps you live near us. What does that matter? You see, God had told them, as they go into the land, God had said, you must destroy these other nations that are already there. 
If you don't destroy them, they will corrupt you. If you don't destroy them, they will teach you to worship their gods. You will worship their gods. You will offend me and I will destroy you. So for your own safety, when you go into the land, you must destroy those who are already living in the land. That's what God had told them. Now, we'll look later on about the, at the ethics of that. Perhaps next week. I keep telling you we'll look at it later on. And perhaps next week, if I have time to get into it. But we'll look at the whole ethics of slaughtering all the people that are already in the land. But for the moment, what we want to notice is this. God had spoken. God had said, kill all the current inhabitants of the land. And you remember Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do according to all that is in it. Then you will have a success. Then you will be prosperous and blessed. So God had said the key to their lives together, the key to their lives with him, was to obey God's word. And God had said, destroy the current inhabitants of the land. And so when these Gibeonites came to them and said, make a treaty with us, the men of Israel rightly asked, where are you from? Are you from around here or from away? Joshua said, who are you? Where do you come from? Because above all else, if God has said, if you are from this land, then we cannot make a treaty with you. We will not dishonor God. And that's where any decision we make has to start. What has God said? How has he spoken? We must obey. That's the first place we always start. So as we think about a building, well, you could, before we get to a building, think about it other parts of your life, you know. If you're thinking about getting married, what has God said? One thing God has said is, marry anyone you want. Uh, Interesting. You don't actually have to ask for God's will about who you marry. Marry anyone. As far as God's concerned, marry anyone. There's some common sense. We'll look at that later. That should control, maybe influence how, who you marry. The one thing God has said is this. Marry anyone you want as long as they are in the faith. So if you're considering getting married and the person you're in love with is not a believer and you are, you don't have to pray about that. You don't have to ask God what his will is. He's already told you in Scripture what his will is. Now, how about a building? What does Scripture tell us about buildings? Our decision would be so much easier if we lived in the Old Testament. Because if you remember Haggai chapter 1, what Haggai says to the people is this. You know, they'd been in exile. The country had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. They'd been taken in exile. Then they come back to the land. Then they have nowhere to live. So they build houses. And they build a little tiny place for worship God, but they built houses. And their houses got nicer and nicer. And they got paneling in their walls and the whole thing. Nice luxury homes. And at Haggai 1, God said to them, How is it you live in fancy houses and all you've made for me is this piddling altar? See, so if we lived in Haggai's time, we'd say it's important that the quality of the building where we worship God is comparable to the quality of our own private homes. And if our private homes are renovated, then the church should be renovated. If our private homes are, if we have a fitness room in there, great, fitness room, gym in the church. You know? The comparable quality, if we lived in the Old Testament. But then Jesus kind of edits that. 
Because remember what happened in Matthew chapter 24. 24, I think it's Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is with his disciples and they say, look at this temple. You know, the temple was being built for over 40 years. It was massive, beautiful, gorgeous building. And the disciples said to Jesus, look at that beautiful temple where we worship God. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Within a generation, that temple is going to be torn down. You know, these people have got a beautiful building, but they're not really worshiping. And they're going to reject Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, God's going to reject them. And that whole building is going to come tumbling down. And never again in the Bible do we hear about a building being the house of God or the temple of God. There is no indication in the New Testament that God ever cares about the building in which we worship him. None of the rest. What does God care about? The only temple in the New Testament you will see is us as his people. So here's what God cares about. God says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. God says, you are the temple. We, collectively, are the temple of God. And God says, anyone who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. What does God care about? God cares about us. All of us together. What does God care about? He cares that we not destroy us, our community, by infighting, by church splits. This is what God cares about. Not about the building that we meet in, but about the building that we are. Now that is sacred before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And we dare never harm the community, whatever, regardless of whatever kind of building we live in. What else does scripture say? Not about buildings, but, but, but that balances. If we have $6 million to spend, no, no, we don't have $6 million to spend. If we're going to ask you to stump up $6 million, well, no, the Chinese ministry is about three times our size, so let's say we were responsible for one quarter of that, $1.5 million. If we're going to ask you to stump up, no, I'm just joking. We don't do it like that way. But per capita tax as you come in the door, you know. Uh, if we're going to put up that much money, what does Scripture say about how we spend our money? Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and, and they weren't wealthy. They were actually struggling financially. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he said to them, You know, this church in Jerusalem, a thousand miles away, took three months to travel. This church, at the far distant reaches of your imagination, that church is going through a famine. We got people there losing their homes. We got people there who can't even have food to eat. He says to the Corinthians, you're not wealthy, you're, you're kind of poor. But, you know, you have a responsibility for them. So the question is not only do we build a building. The question is, if we can raise this money, what do we spend it on? Do we spend it on a, a, a physical plant? Or do we spend it on the poor and the homeless, and the orphans, and the widows in other countries. Now, this came home to me once because, uh, you know, last year I was visiting my son in Chicago, and my son has a real heart for the immigrant community, uh, the refugee community. He's got a friend that's leading the, the Christian movement in this country to uh, have uh, legislative uh, 
change in the legislation to help the undocumented immigrants, the, the illegals. So he took me out to a meeting that they were having with a lot of pastors in the area. And he warned me before we went. He said, you know, because he, he, sometimes I'd have attitude. And he says, you know, you have to be really calm when we go to this meeting. He said, um, because he said, the church is kind of fancy. Whoa, the church was not kind of fancy. The church was unbelievably, ridiculously luxurious. And when we go up this long driveway, you know, beautiful manicured lawns all around, you'd have thought you were driving into, it was nicer than stride right. Remember you driving to stride right? You know how nice it is with all the manicured lawn and all that and the beautiful building? This church was way better than stride right. The lawns were as good and the church building was just spectacular. You go in in this huge uh, atrium, high ceiling atrium, and the sanctuary, I don't know, maybe the sanctuary seats 1,500. We had only a few hundred. We didn't even go to the sanctuary. We went to the chapel. And the chapel was fancier than anything we have in our church. The building, I looked it up online, the building, the initial projection was $30 million for this church building. And in, in fact, you know, initial projections are generally low, so who knows what they really spent, $35, $40 million put up this building. And we're having a meeting there about how to affect legislation to help the cause of the illegal immigrant. And the only illegal immigrants I saw were maybe the guys doing on the grounds crew, you know. Uh, to the church's credit, they did have a ministry to, to illegal immigrants or to whatever. But I'm thinking, if you're going to spend $35 million... You know, when you appear before Christ at the end of time, and Christ says, okay, what would you do with what I gave you? And we say, well, we built a big, fancy building. What do you do with that? Well, what is Jesus going to do with that? He talked, about visiting the, the, he talked about visiting the prisoners, right? Caring for the poor and the hungry. What are you going to do? So I know another church that spent $15 million on their building. And here's the reality. If you're going to reach upper-middle-class people who live in nice homes and who go to work at nice office parks and whose companies are well-appointed, if you're going to reach them, they're not going to go to a dumpy little church where the bathrooms smell and the carpet's threadbare. You know they're not going to go there. So there's a church that had a vision for reaching professionals, and they spent $15 million on their building. But at least... At least in some degree, they heard Jesus. And they said, of this $15 million, we're going to set aside $1 million for the poor and the needy. Now, maybe it's still imbalanced. Maybe, I don't know, 14 to 1. I don't know. It's not my decision. I'm not in that church. But somehow, it illustrates the kind of decision we have to reach. How do we... The question is this. How can we build a building and still care for the poor. If we need the building, how can we build it and still care for the poor? What can we do to care for the poor? And how can we do it both rather than just one or the other? If we're going to have a ministry to successful Asians, I don't, it's going to be a really uphill climb unless we have a building that's suitable to successful Asians or Americans. I don't care what race you are. If we're going to have a ministry to the upper middle class and higher, it's really hard to do that unless you have a building that's upper middle class and higher. 
a little sweet. Competitive, uh, so the uh, fast food industry is really hotly competitive now, you know. And Burger King slipped to number three because I think it was uh, 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 Wendy's that became number two. Anyway, fast food industry is really competitive right now. Do you know that what they found to be the key to success in the fast food industry? Shame. Fast? Fat. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, fat. You know, that's the hidden key. Yeah. Pump them full of calories and people love it, right? Even the salads at McDonald's are full of salt and full of fat. Yeah. But no, no, no. The key to competing against other fast food industries is this. Renovate your building. You know, it's Panera that's taking away business from these fast food joints. Panera and places like that, uh, Starbucks and Seattle. So what you do is you gotta renovate your building. Make your building comfortable. People will spend, stay there for hours and they stay there for hours. They smell that food and they smell that drink and they gotta eat it. If fast food industry realizes that a high quality building is the way you attract people, there are pressures on us as a church. If we want to reach the kind of people who come here, if we want to reach suburban Christians, it's really hard to do that unless you have a building or a facility that comes up to the standards that people accept. Is it noble? Maybe not, but it may be necessary. But we'll get to that in a moment. The, the fundamental point is this. Here, at this stage, is how do we do that? Reach the kind of people we're trying to reach and still care for the poor. Scripture doesn't tell us we have to have a fancy building. Scripture does tell us we have to care about the poor. Point number one, Scripture is primary. Point number two, look at their use of common sense. The Gibeonites said, okay, here's our stuff. Here's our bread. It was warm when we packed it, now it's moldy. Here's our wineskins. They were fresh and new when we filled them with wine. Look at them now, they're cracked and leaking. Look at our clothes and our sandals. All of our equipment was brand new when we started out. Now look how old it is. And so what did the Israelites do? There was some due diligence here. They used common sense. They checked it out. Verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions. They used common sense. They checked it out to make sure the story they were being told was right. Of course, they'd been deceived. They didn't know about that. But they at least used common sense to look at the circumstance and say, yeah, this fits. Now here... Scripture does not tell us we have to have a new building. Why would anyone think that we'd have to have a new building? Scripture doesn't tell us to build a gym or to build small group meeting rooms. Why would anyone think we need to build a gym or small group meeting rooms? You know, look around. EM, we don't need more space. In fact... I try to get people to rope off. I try to get the, uh, the uh, ushers to rope off the back because, you know, the worship experience is a whole lot better when the front section is crowded. It's a whole lot easier to get into the music if we're all sitting up here. And I got the best seat in the house because I normally sit right here in the front row and I got a boisterous family behind me that sings lustily. It's the only thing we can do lustily, biblically. But they say, oh, you know, and, and I got the band right in front of me. I don't need the speakers. I'm a just great place to worship up front. We don't need more space, okay? And look, a lot of you guys got kids, but your kids are two years old. 
three years old, one years old, we have a couple of recent births. You don't need a children's program yet. All you need is a nursery. Why do we need a building if the Bible doesn't call us, if God doesn't call us? Come here on a Friday night and see the chaos that is children's ministry. Because we get over a hundred, we have to close off the children's ministry, the Iwana program, because there's too many kids. I mean, there's still there's too many, but we close it off so there's not way, way too many. We just stop at way too many. For the amount of space we have available, the place is a zoo. And it's, you know, King Fai's brought a, Pastor King Fai has brought a lot of organization, uh, a lot of order into chaos. But only God could create that much order out of that much chaos with the amount of space we have. It's a, not a theological reason that we would argue for building. It's a very practical reason. Now, I didn't know ahead of time that this was going to happen, but we got the youth groupers, and I already planted this question to find out what their answer would be before I ask it. Youth groupers, how many of you think we need a gym? Yeah, look at that. Before it started, a whole bunch of them were sticking their hands up in the air. Now they're all, come on, guys. You know, you want to take, you say, you want to take a hundred junior high students and put them in a building, put them in a room and keep them quiet for three hours so you can actually teach them. I mean, we got really good junior high, good youth groupers and all that kind of thing. But it's really kind of hard. School systems don't try to do this. The re- and, and think of this, Friday night fellowship groups. You know, the CM is normally quite gracious. They don't normally come looking to us, but boy, there's an awful lot of CMers, fellowship groups crammed into the upstairs, vying for space. And every once in a while they spill over and they plead with EM, can't you give up some of your space? And we say, we don't want to give up our space. We like our space. So you know, for us, this is not quite so urgent. But for children's ministry, and if your kids are now two or three years old, where are they going to be in three or four years? It's going to take us three or four years to get a building, building built. Where are your kids going to be in three or four years? Huh? Where are your youth now? Well, a lot of us don't have youth, but a lot of us are youth. You know, the program that we could have, the facility, if we had the facilities for it. So there's certain practicality, certain common sense. There's things, well, yeah, anyway, so there's a strong common sense argument for it. A third factor to consider is this. Chapter 9, verse 14. Notice Israel did two things well. They started with Scripture, and then they used common sense. Notice what they left out. Chapter 9, verse 14b. They did not inquire of the Lord. Now, here's a real trick. They used common sense, they used Scripture, and they made a decision. They didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, here's a problem for them. Because Numbers chapter 27, Moses is leaving. And he's going to leave Joshua in charge. And he knows sometimes Joshua is going to be confused. Sometimes Joshua is not going to know what to do. Sometimes Joshua is going to be overwhelmed. And so he, told, he set up a system. Joshua, if you don't know what to do, here's what you do. You inquire of the Lord. And here's how you do it. You go to the high priest, Eliezer. And he's got this thing called Urim. And you ask him a question, he'll throw out the Urim before the Lord, and the Lord will answer Eliezer, and Eliezer will answer you. And you'll know what to do. Now, Joshua, for some reason, didn't contact Eliezer. Now, so here's what we do today. If we're uncertain what to do, what we do is we go to the senior pastor, and he takes his germ and he throws it down before the Lord, and then he can tell us what to do. And it would work infallibly if we knew what a Urim was. 
But lacking a Urim, what do we do about it? And, and here's the only thing we're left with, really, is as a community, we gather together and we seek the Lord. We gather together and we pray. The second Friday in September, we, ask, we gather together before God and say, look, God, you know, we're not really sure how to balance these things out. The need that we have, the practical need we have for building and the needs of the poor around the world. How do we balance this out? And, and how do we apportion our money? And how much should we raise? And, and what do we do? We seek the Lord together. And it's really not all that obvious often. And maybe we'll pray together and we still won't know for certain. But at least we make the effort as a community to inquire with the Lord. What would you have us do? And maybe he'll lead us collectively with more certainty than he's left us so far. Fourth principle, or fourth practice. Take a look at 9.15 to 27. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just summarize what he's done in 9.15 to 27. They made a bad decision. And you know, whatever decision we make this time could be a bad one. No guarantee. Let me illustrate. Why do we have this building? I wasn't here at the time, but we used to worship in Woburn. For those of you who are not from Boston, that town is Woburn. But for those of you who are native, it's Woburn. And a small building, an armory that had been renovated. And people took a big risk then. They said that this is property, it's located near 95 and Route 2, location, location, location. It costs a chunk of money, and building will cost even more money. What do we do? And they took a risk. It was a controversial decision, they took a risk. But here's the thing. What we didn't know was that June 4th, 1989 would happen. What we didn't know was that the People's army would invade Tiananmen Square. Had we known that, we could have anticipated there would be a massive movement. Because before a culture can turn to faith, there has to be broken down. And Tiananmen Square did some extraordinary things to the, the Chinese national psyche. And in that crevice it created, the gospel flooded in. And in an extraordinary work of God, you realize that over half of our church are mainland converts since after 89? We had no idea God was going to do that. But what happened in Tiananmen has a direct effect on what happens here. And we can't anticipate it. We can't anticipate population projections. We can't anticipate conversion projections. We can't anticipate what God is going to do in a various culture and, and to Break it wide open for the gospel. But we have, as large a congregation as we have, CM is packed to the walls because before it was necessary, this intrepid group in Wilburn said, we need a bit more space. Let's take a risk. And once they made the decision to build, you know, the economy sank. And times are tough. A lot of people lost their jobs. And it looked like a bad decision at the time. So maybe we'll commit ourselves to some huge building project. And maybe population projections will change. 
or maybe conversion projections or realities will change. We can't control all of these things. And if by temperament you're cautious as I am cautious, you're going to say, let's be careful. Let's not stick it out there too far. But some extraordinary things have happened through this church because we stuck our necks out once before. Well, not we. An older generation stuck its necks out. And their faith grew because they saw God work through their risk. And the older generation is the, particularly the ones pr- promoting this development now. And they're saying, look, <laughs> I, I've heard one of them say, I was opposed to the original building. And yet I see how God used it. Maybe this is what God's calling us to do. And it may be a reach for some of us because we haven't seen, we haven't stuck our necks out. We haven't seen God answer. We haven't, our faith hasn't built But maybe there's something here. Maybe this is a risk we could take. What happens, though, if we make a bad decision? Because there's no guarantee. Even if the decision is good, the outcome may be difficult. Let's say not a bad decision, but a, a a difficult outcome. Look at what happened with them. They made a flawed decision. And they said, what do we do with this? We've got these Gibeonites living among them. And they did something very clever. I'll take just a moment to explain what they did, but then illustrate how it applies to us. These Gibeonites, to trick them into making a treaty, these Gibeonites kept saying, oh, we're your servants, we're your servants. You know, you're the, you're the more powerful power, we'll be your servants. And so, and so Joshua turns around and says, okay, we got this treaty. We don't want it, but we got it. We can't break it now. God's word does not let us break the treaty. We got this treaty. So now what we're going to do is, hey, you're going to be our servants. You said you were our servants? Okay, let's do it now. Now you can do the kind of job that immigrants always do, the kind of job we don't want to do. You're going to carry water for us, you're going to cut our wood. Basically what I would illustrate from that is they made the best of the circumstances they could. And this is something maybe we'll have to do. You know, maybe it looks like the best thing to do now. And maybe the economy will tank, or Spain, or who knows, maybe France and Germany will all collapse, and then we're going to be really in deep strife. We can't control the future. But we can do this. We can resolve to make the best of the circumstances that they present to us. That's not a really happy message. But look at the final point here in verses 10, 1 to 7. Uh, Sorry, let me skip over that one. The final point in 10, 8 to 15. They had made a decision that was not God's will for them. And that decision led immediately to a consequence. They had to fight a battle against five kings now in chapter 10. They had to fight a battle against five kings. What did God do in this battle? God could have said to them, look, fools, I told you not to make a treaty. You made a treaty. And now instead of fighting this one city, now you've got to fight, fight, fight five at once. God could have said, it's time you learned your lesson. Muddle through it on your own. But what does God say to them in chapter 10, verses 5 to 8? The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And then as they went to battle, verse 10, the Lord threw the enemy army into confusion before Israel. As they fled before Israel, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more died from the hail than died from the battle with the Israelites. 
On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. This is the bottom line. We will at times be called to make decisions and we won't know 100% certainty what the best decision is. And by nature, those of us who are bold will say, march ahead. And those of us who are cautious will say, hold back. And we won't know which is the absolutely best. We make the decision based on scripture. We make the decision based on common sense. We come together and pray and make the decision. And then this is what we do finally. We count on our Lord who turns even bad decisions into good. Israel made a decision here that violated what God had told them, not through carelessness, but through neglect. Not deliberate disobedience, but through neglect. They made a bad move. And God intervened and said, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. I will fight for you. And God killed more by his hand than Israel killed by theirs. And this is fundamentally what we take hope in. That we serve a God who redeems mistakes. We seek him through scripture. We seek him through common sense. We seek him through prayer. And there, with the best light of knowledge we have, we make a decision. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, our trust is not in our interpretation of scripture. Our trust is not in our common sense. Our trust is not in prayer. But our trust is in God, who redeems the mistakes of his people, even when they commit mistakes. Let's pray together. Father, we look for you to guide us. To know how much we should spend on a building for ministry to the people we have here already. How much we should spend on the poor. We look for you to guide us through common sense. We look for you to speak to us through prayer when we meet together. Most of all, Father, in our bumbling efforts to honor you, we look for you to work sovereignly, to bring glory to your name, nurture to Christians, and to help those who are in need. Father, use our best efforts and use them abundantly, that your name might be glorified, even when we're not entirely certain what's the best course of action. We ask for your grace and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.